Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. It's Tuesday, the 5th of October. I'm Nadja Swart, and you're listening to the Biz News Power Hour. On the show today, Alec Hogg speaks to Paul Gardner, the chief executive of the Mantis Collection, about the effects that South Africa's placement on the UK's red list has had on tourism. Alec also speaks to forensic investigator Paul O'Sullivan about the Digital Vibes corruption scandal, South African Airways and alleged Gupta fixer Cuban Moodley being granted bail just last week. My colleague Justin Roy Roberts will be speaking to Asif Mohammed, the CIO of Aon Investment Management. And then for today's Investment Insights, Justin will be speaking to Stephen Nathan, the founder of 10X Investments. Also, as usual, we'll get insights from our partners at the Financial Times. But first, here are your news headlines. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Jared Neves and you are the most accessed stories on the Biz News platforms. On our website, biznews.com, Immigration and your investments. Rob Hersov is still popular with snippets from his speech at the Biz News Investment Conference remaining well read. And Paul O'Sullivan back in the saddle with SAA. On Biz News TV on YouTube, Market Insights with David Shapiro, Yesterday's Flash Briefing and Investment Insights with Jean-Pierre Fester are our most watched videos. On Biz News Radio on Spotify, Sasvin's David Shapiro discussing Evergrande was the most popular podcast, followed by yesterday's Power Hour and Corian Capital's David Bacher unpacking asset class and fund performance data for September. I'm Jared Neves for Biz News. I'm Nadja Swat and here are today's news headlines. Eskom Holdings, South Africa's coal-reliant power utility, has become the world's biggest emitter of sulfur dioxide, a pollutant linked to ailments ranging from asthma to heart attacks, the Centre for Research on Energy and Clean Air said. ESCOM produced 1,600 kilotons of the pollutant in 2019, the latest year for which comparable data is available, according to the report released on Tuesday by CREA, an air pollution research organisation. That was more than any company and the total emission of the power sector of any country with the exception of India. While China, the US and the European Union have slashed sulphur dioxide emissions in recent years, by fitting pollution abatement equipment to power plants, ESCOM has only done so at one of its 15 coal-fired facilities. Members of the National Union of Metalworkers of South Africa started a national strike on Tuesday following a deadlock in negotiations for a new wage deal. Union members didn't report for duty in five of the country's nine provinces, NUMSA spokeswoman Hlubi Mayola said by phone. The union has about 155,000 members and the strike reportedly expected to attract more than 300,000 workers, including from allied unions, she added. NUMSA, one of the biggest labor organizations in South Africa, is demanding an 8% wage increase in the first year and 2% above inflation increase in the subsequent two years. 
South Africa's digital COVID-19 vaccine certificate, which features a scannable QR code, has been launched by the Department of Health. The South African COVID-19 vaccine certificate system went live without announcement on Tuesday. Its development comes amid government's move to ease lockdown restrictions and create a certifiable proof of vaccination. South Africa's health department has not yet announced the official launch of the South African COVID-19 vaccine certificate system, indicating, as with the initial launch of the EVDS, that the online portal is still being refined. And now it's over to my colleague Justin for the Market Report. I'm Justin Roberts and this is the Market Report. In the price action, the JSU All-Share Index was up at 64300 In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies, to 15 rand 4 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 47 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 43 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,753 an ounce. Kruger Rand will cost you around 27,500 Rand. Brent crude is trading at $83 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back three quarters of a million Rand. In the financial news, some businesses that were affected by the unrest and looting in July, largely in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng, have already received a total of $5.8 billion worth of insurance payouts from the South African Special Risks Insurance Association, or better known as SASRIA. SASRIA, which is still processing claims related to the incident, said it will receive a 3.9 billion cash injection from National Treasury, which has come on board as SASRIA's insurer of last resort. This market report was made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Tuesday, October 5th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Oil prices keep going up. OPEC added more fuel to that fire yesterday. And a U.S. senator wants regulators to probe Federal Reserve officials' personal trading activity. Plus, Facebook's no good, very bad month keeps getting worse. Today, a whistleblower will appear before Congress to talk about what she experienced when she was inside the company. The thing I saw at Facebook over and over again was there were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. And Facebook over and over again chose to optimize for its own interests. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. U.S. oil prices rose to their highest level in seven years after OPEC and its allies said they would not speed up plans to increase crude oil production. The decision comes despite a global energy crunch and despite urging from the White House. The group is basically sticking with a plan they made in the summer to increase production only gradually. And they haven't said much about why they came to this decision. Here's the FT's energy editor, David Shepard. Normally, after an OPEC meeting, uh, the Saudi oil minister, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, would normally quite enjoy having a press conference, having an opportunity to talk with the press, explain their thinking and say what's going on. For the last two months, he's avoided doing this. But people are saying in the background that what they believe is going on is, A, they don't think the oil price has risen as much as it as natural gas or coal prices. They don't want to be publicly seen to be getting on the wrong side of the United States, which, of course, is a long-term ally of theirs. They also don't want to offend their customers in Asia or Europe who might be thinking, well, wait, why aren't you doing more to cap oil prices at this stage? Now, David, couldn't... Part of this just be that it 
want to enjoy high prices while they can, given that so many big economies and big companies really are trying to move away from fossil fuels? There's always an element of, well, OPEC itself and its allies say, oh, we do not target price. The high prices for a fossil fuel producer that, that largely relies on these revenues to fund its government budget, of course, a higher price is a nice to have the majority of the time. But there are different levels to this. You know, a price 65 to 80, probably okay. But the worry is, is that if the price keeps heading higher, heads towards 100, heads to 120, that's when people start to get concerned on both sides, both consumers from the point of view of this is bad for our economies because inflation is going to rise, the cost of industry is going to go way up, but also producers because as they can see this push towards renewables, this push away from fossil fuels, if you get very high prices, it's only going to accelerate that move. The jump in oil prices is adding to inflation and interest rate fears, and that rattled markets on Monday. The yield on the benchmark 10-year Treasury note rose and stock prices fell. The S&P 500 closed down 1.5%. Tech stocks are especially sensitive to inflation concerns. The tech-heavy Nasdaq had its worst day since June, falling more than 2%. And the worst hit of the big technology stocks was, you guessed it, Facebook. After an extensive global outage on Monday, the social media company's stock fell nearly 5%. This comes as Facebook's being publicly hammered for ethically questionable and potentially dangerous practices after a former employee leaked a trove of internal documents to the Wall Street Journal. This whistleblower revealed her identity on Sunday in an interview with the CBS News program 60 Minutes. Her name is Frances Haugen. Facebook has demonstrated they cannot act independently. Facebook over and over again has shown it chooses profit over safety. It is subsidizing, it is paying for its profits with our safety. Haugen will be on Capitol Hill today taking questions from lawyers. The FT's Kieran Stacey will be covering the hearing. He joins me now. So what kind of questions could we expect from senators to ask Haugen? I think there'll be a mix of questions. There'll be the obvious grandstanding, which always happens during hearings like this. And then there'll be some who come with very focused questions looking to uncover more information than we already have. So what we have is a lot of documents which suggest that Facebook had done a lot of internal research about the impact of their platforms on the users. I think what senators will want to know is, okay, what were these documents actually showing? What was the data behind them? And the obvious thing I think is going to be what the impact was from Facebook's dismantling of the Civic Integrity Unit, which is where Francis Haugen was working. And specifically, can we tie what happened on January the 6th back to that? Now, she said in her interview, she did think that that had a role, but exactly how could the Civic Integrity Unit have stopped it? And what exactly was the impact of it? Those are the kind of specific direct questions that I think are most likely to uncover new information. Now, you mentioned January 6th, the attack on the U.S. Capitol by supporters of former President Donald Trump. That could come up in today's questioning. Senators may also dig into Facebook's awareness of the toxic effect that its app Instagram has on teens while being slow to actively address the issue. And we're seeing frustration with Facebook on both sides of the aisle, too, right? 
is kind of bipartisan to the extent that both Republicans and Democrats hate Facebook, but they hate the company and they hate big tech for very different reasons. Republicans really feel that they have been stifled by large technology companies. For Facebook specifically, there will, of course, be the issue of Facebook kicking Donald Trump off the platform. On the Democratic side, really, it started, I think, with the election of Donald Trump. That was a moment where the Democrats, who had been quite close to the technology industry until that point, really turned their backs on the whole industry. And then that has since been exacerbated by events such as, obviously, the Capitol riots on January the 6th. But also at the moment, there's a lot of vaccine misinformation, specifically on Facebook. And that's something that Frances Haugen talked about in, in her interview over the weekend. Kieran, could this testimony and all these documents that have come out lead to any change in policy or, or legislation? There is legislation in the works on a range of issues. The first one that's been in the works for a long time is federal privacy legislation. The other legislative action is on antitrust and competition policy. So legislation, as always in Washington, is very, very difficult to get through. And I suspect that what we see coming out of this legislatively will be quite underwhelming. What this really is about is putting public pressure on the company. And if they are able to uncover things that really damage Facebook's reputation, it might trigger a series of events where investors start to take flight from the company and pressure builds on the board to start making management changes. Kieran Stacey covers Capitol Hill for the FT. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks very much, Mark. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren is going after the Federal Reserve again. She's called Fed Chair Jay Powell a dangerous man and announced that she'll oppose his renomination. His term ends in February. And yesterday, she called on securities regulators to investigate financial trades made by top Fed officials. Last week, two regional Fed presidents announced they were resigning amid a probe into their trading activity. Here's U.S. economics editor Colby Smith. So she has long been critical of the way in which the Fed has made some tweaks on the margins to the uh, bank regulation that was put in place after the financial crisis. What we saw were marginal changes to some of those rules, and that is her biggest kind of criticism to date. And it's what she cited last week when she said that she would not be supporting his renomination as chair of the Federal Reserve. Colby, why would Elizabeth Warren push for an investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission when the Federal Reserve is doing its own ethics investigation? In a way, the Fed is really focused, I think, on moving forward here on how it's going to be changing the rules and regulations, whereas the SEC, what Elizabeth Warren is interested in pursuing is if those trades violated any kind of insider trading rules of any kind. I think what caught a lot of people's attention was Richard Clarida's trades, uh, which occurred in late February of last year, which was a day before the Fed chair issued a rare statement that suggested the central bank was preparing to take some kind of action to support the economy at the onset of the pandemic. Now, the Fed has said that this was a pre-planned rebalancing of his portfolio and something that, you know, had prior approval. But this is exactly the type of transaction that Warren wants the SEC to take a closer look on. Colby Smith is the FT's U.S. economics editor. 
You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, it's exciting times in the South African hospitality industry. Paul Gardner from the Mantis Group joins us now. Paul, lovely being uh, to talk to you on a day when, uh, well, we're all awaiting South Africa finally being taken off the red list, the UK's red list. Let's unpack that before we go into it. Uh, why is, uh, or how important is the UK to South African tourism? It's an essential market. I mean, if you if you look at uh, the the stats, um, we would generate 2.6 million tourists internationally into our country annually, and a massive chunk of that, almost 450,000 of those are Brits. So when you switch that channel off, you can just understand the implications it has for South Africa. So it's it's going to be a big a big announcement. Why Thursday? Uh, the, I think the UK government do these announcements every three weeks. So it just falls into that slot. So there's no specific rhyme or reason for that. Um, but the rumors are that we are going to be removed. Um, you know, usually that kind of information leaks to the press. So the press kind of gets the heads up a week or so before. And, and that rumor's broken. So let's see what happens. I spoke with Lord Peter Hayne on Friday, and he was uh, being South African born and a former British cabinet minister was quite vociferous about it. He's written a strong letter to Boris Johnson. I hope that doesn't backfire, though. I did pick that letter up. I think on, I think you'd actually posted it. And, uh, you know, I think uh, um, Ramaphosa has been in touch with Boris. So he's getting it from all angles. And um, interestingly, how um, our tourism campaign transpired was um, I was approached, funny enough, by a Zimbabwean friend of mine, Christine Thompson, who's based in the UK. And she was desperate to get back and she was tearing her hair out. And she said, you know, nobody's really standing up and saying anything. And this dragging on and on and on. And this was about probably five months ago. So I said, well, the right people to talk to are SATSA, which is the South African Tourism Services Association. And that's headed up by um, David Frost. And uh, David's been amazing. And, and so we, we partnered the two of them up, Christine um, and a gentleman called um, Nigel Fairbass from the Turner Partners. So uh, he's, a, he's a PR agency based in the UK. And, um, and so them and David Frost and Satsa have been the muscle behind this. And a lot of private sector contributed to a campaign to really um, push hard to get us off the list. And, and so you would have seen a lot of press here locally, but also a lot of press internationally about how we've been kicking up um, a storm about this, because it's obviously really starting to have a, an effect on, on the industry back home. Well, good for Christine. And Nigel Fairbrass, of course, was head of corporate affairs at SAB Miller when it was the second biggest brewer in the world. So that, you're talking about heavyweights that are involved in this campaign. Uh, interestingly enough, Peter Hayne, I'm not going to ask you to comment on this, but he said it was more cock-up than conspiracy. Uh, he said it was just like an oversight by the British uh, by the British government, but it appears now as though that oversight has been brought front and centre by the efforts that you're talking about. Yeah, you know, there are lots of rumours that go around, the, the, the politics around these things, you know, you just never know what's hap- happening under the water. So I, I don't know, it's very difficult for me to comment on that. All I can say is there's going to be huge relief when we do come off because, you know, I think the big thing for us now is it's October. And generally in our industry, the 1st of October signals the start of a high season because obviously the, the, the air conditioning gets switched on up north in the northern hemisphere and it gets pretty chilly and the Brits just love to get away and, and enjoy the sun. So Southern Hemisphere starts to wake up and the timing couldn't be better. You know, I actually called this right at the start of COVID 
Um, somebody said, when do you think we're going to come out of this? And, um, and I, my brother and I chatted. He's also in the industry. He's got a, a travel agency called Gilt Edge. And we both agreed. 1st of October 2021, we'll start seeing the green shoots. And this is hopefully going to be the green shoot that we've been looking for because there certainly has not been any sign of that. How did you tip October? Was it something to do with when the third wave would be over? No, I don't think it was anything to do with that. I think it was just, again, hope, hoping that we'd be ready by that high season because we knew last year's high season was a complete write-off. And so we thought after the vaccination rollout that it would be um, October 2021. So I think that's it. I think, uh, you know, you know, obviously we're going to experience, We all there's all these rumours surfacing now that we're probably going to have our fourth wave in December. And, and let's hope that that is not too brutal. Um, obviously, we all in our industry are behind the vaccination, and uh, and and you know I think we're up to almost 18 million now that have been vaccinated, and clearly we're seeing the impact of the vaccination um, internationally in the UK. Certainly, that's sort of a, a good benchmark. Um, you know that death rate has absolutely plummeted. Um, sure, the, the cases are still rife, but uh, it's all about keeping people out of hospitals, and I think that that vaccination is proving that. It. It also means that uh, if you haven't been vaccinated as a South African and you want to travel the other way to the UK, and many of us have got business interests and family there, then you better get your vaccine in order because presumably you're not going to be allowed otherwise, uh, into the country otherwise. Certainly. Uh, I mean, that's going, to be a, that's going to be a big showstopper for, for a lot of South Africans wanting to go out, whether it be on their ski trips or, or to do business. I mean, obviously... Um, the UK is a huge hub for, for South African businessmen and women. So, yeah, I think that is going to, um, you know, obviously convince a lot of people, persuade a lot of people to get, get the jab because they're going to want to start spreading their wings again. Paul, what happens to prices in the hospitality industry when you get this influx of British tourists? We've, we've had it pretty good as South Africans. for We've been able to go to places that were unaffordable previously. Are you expecting there'll be a significant adjustment uh, when the red list is over? I think everybody talks about this massive wave and this flood of tourism back to their red, respective countries. And I don't think we're going to see that. I think it's going to be a slower trickle than we think uh, because people are nervous, you know. Europe's easy. You go to Europe and you've got probably, you know, really good hospitals, etc. So you probably feel more comfortable doing that uh, this year or next year. And we started to see that. The UK captured a good summer season and a lot of folk traveled to Europe. Um, I think Africa, you know, people come to Africa, they're nervous. They don't know what our hospital situation is like here. You know, you want to be caught up in, um, in, in, in one of the, the countries here and, and get COVID seriously. And you're going to wonder where you're going to end up. Now, I think that's an opportunity for South Africa because obviously our private medical sector here is, is phenomenal. So I think we should be waving that flag as South Africa and almost leading the way in tourism to say, guys, besides our amazing hospitality and our wonderful lodges and hotels strewn across this country, we've also got amazing hospitals that should anything go wrong, we can take good care of you here. So I think we should definitely capitalize on that. How quickly will the airlines open up new flights to bring a prospective tourists here? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be interesting too. I mean, um, there's, you know, just I'll, I'll read an interesting statement from Virgin that I got this morning in preparation for our talk um, because the, the signs are there uh, and this is quite interesting. And I'll read this line for line if you don't mind. Um, I don't know who it came from at Virgin, but it's Virgin South Africa. We expect a surge in bookings once South Africa is formally removed from the red list. 
but early indicators are very positive. Um, London to Joburg has been in our top selling routes in the Virgin Network over the past weekend, which is exciting, with most bookings for travel in December and January, as I mentioned, high season. And this is 460% uh, week on week increase, albeit from a low base. Um, Virgin currently operates three passenger flights a week from London to Joburg, and this will increase to a daily service by the end of the year. We remain committed to Cape Town, and this service will restart in Jan 2022. So that's exciting. I mean, that's Virgin. Virgin's obviously a relatively big player, but I think we should probably start to see some interesting um, similar um, articles coming out on what BA's plans are. Obviously, SAA is starting to wake up, and, and there'll be a few others. So I think it'll come back relatively quickly. It is obviously a concern, but it's going to be one of those supply-demand things. We're going to have to wait and see what the demand is. And then I think the airlines will start being bumped up again here. And how important is tourism to South Africa? It, almost to put this all in perspective, we know that the Brits are our biggest tourists from from overseas anyway. Uh, and you gave us the number of 450,000 a year. But do you have a, a sense of uh, the injection that this could have on economic growth in the country? Yeah, well, listen, typically pre-COVID again, um, I mean, it, 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 they, it, the stat is, or the RAND value is $426 billion, um, for, is, comes from tourism, which equates to 3% of our GDP to the economy, which is, which is a big figure, obviously. Um, so we're very dependent on it. And that is a, a job creator of 1.5 million people. Um, but I mean, I read a stat the other day that there's, you know, probably half of that, or even closer to a million, have been wiped out. So we've got to get that recovery coming, which is going to be really interesting. Um, so and and so important for this country because you know it's a it's a big job creator. It's a big number. It's a big stat. It's a big contributor to the GDP, and it's absolutely vital. And it's it's not just about urban. It's about rural. You think about all the game reserves out there. That have been affected and impacted, and the and the job losses that have come. So you've got communities there that are hugely impacted because if we employ fifty people at a lodge in, in here, it, you know that's probably feeding five hundred um, people in total. And and then of course when there is no food, we know what happens. It's uh, it's got a massive knock on. So you know again, I can't emphasise the importance of us coming off this red list. It's going to be an absolute game changer. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Paul O'Sullivan of Forensics for Justice joins us now. And an unusual place to start for us, Paul, an article that you wrote about being on the re-inaugural, I suppose you could call it, flight to Cape Town at South African Airways. You're a huge supporter of SAA. You must have felt something special to decide to actually write that piece. What struck me was the spontaneous applause that appeared to come from other passengers and presumably including yourself. I was actually videotaping with my phone uh, both the takeoff and the landing. Um, those that know me know that I'm an aviation um, enthusiast. You know, I have my own plane and I do a lot of flying. So I was actually videotaping for my own use, if you like, the the takeoff. 
And as the plane rotated and we went into the air, everybody on board started cheering and clapping. And the same happened uh, when we landed. Uh, and it was reminiscent of being back in Russia on a domestic flight, because the domestic flights in Russia, the people all cheer when it lands, you know. <laughs> I, I suppose that goes back to the old days when uh, the hostess would say, well, if you stay in your seats while the captain taxis what's left of the aircraft to the terminal building. It was extraordinary how well that piece of yours was received by the business community. Tens of thousands of people reading it and uh, interesting debate around it. Some people saying, well, O'Sullivan would say that he's a platinum card holder, whereas other people are saying, good for you, Paul. I'm so pleased that we've got SAA back in the air and uh, the country needs a national airline. I think, you know, there's always going to be people that are negative. There's not much you can do about them. The people that are prepared to be negative about everything in life I just stay away from people like that because they want to make you negative. Um, and I'm a positive person. And I always believe that if there's something wrong, you know, something can be done about it. We have great people in this country. Uh, 99% of the people in this country are good, decent people. And there's a great camaraderie with, you know, all be- between the races. Of course, there's little splinter groups that want to be racist. You know, they, they, there are black and white people that want to be racist. Um, but for the most of the people in the country, they want to get on together and they recognize that we're in the same, we're all in the same boat and we must all row together. And if it's bailing out water, we must bail out the water together. And I think that's what's unique about South Africa. There's so much apathy. If I look at what's going on in Europe at the moment, you know, there's total apathy. People just don't give a damn. You, if you fall down in the street in London, people will actually walk over you. They will step over you rather than help you. And I think in South Africa, people tend to be, there's a lot more oneness, even though, that, you know, sometimes the media do latch on to these very rare examples where people, um, I think there's a famous estate agent who got carried away and there was another lady who uh, took it out on the traffic cop, but... For the most part, um, people in this country are trying to work together and make the country a good country. Now, it's very easy to ride off an airline. If you apply the same mentality to those that say, I'll never fly on the airline again. Why? Because it was corrupt? Because it was in the hands of corrupt people? If you apply that same mentality, you must stop buying your electricity from ESCOM. And you better not drive your roads on a road that's been put there by the National Road Agency, you know, because there's corruption there. And why on earth would you get on a train that's being run by what was a corrupt prasa? Yeah, it's an interesting point that you make on on many levels. But now with the private sector coming in, and uh, we haven't heard the results of the due diligence yet, but if that were to happen, you might have the best of both worlds. Uh, Private sector operated, 51% controlled airline that remains the the national carrier or the the flag bearer in the international community. But Paul, just moving on to another piece of very good news is the digital vibes story that is now reaching a conclusion. You unpacked it for us very well a little while ago. Have you been following the latest developments there? Yeah, well, obviously I've got the SIU report. Um, the president released it, I think it was last week. So they said there was, 
150 million rand of fruitless and wasteful expenditure, of which 72, between 72 and 80 million was in, incurred by the National Department of Health. Uh, so that's quite a significant amount of money. They could have built a nice hospital somewhere for that same amount of money. And yet the preservation orders that they've obtained, they've only managed to secure 22 million. So one has to assume that the rest of the money has been spent at car dealerships or whatever. An investigation needs to unpack that and get some more of that money back. I think 22 million out of 150 million is, is a, a very low return. What they have done, they've made it clear, which I think we've known all along, is that Matha and Mitha uh, committed fraud because this whole digital vibes thing was nothing more or less than a front for them. And they had their, their dear friend uh, who must be probably not their friend anymore and probably having her own lawyer separate to them. And that would be Miss Harry Ram, uh, the petrol station manager who suddenly woke up to find that she was the owner of a company with 150 million rand in, in turnover. Now, of course, she had no knowledge of what was going on in the company at all. And there's a warning signal there to like-minded Miss Harry Rams, and that is don't allow somebody to set up a company in your name and run that company and pay you something for the trouble because you're allowing them to use you as a front. And that's criminal. It's money laundering. And that's what they've been up to. So um, and I think this, the, the, the report rec recognizes that there needs to be criminal charges against a number of individuals, including uh, Matha, Mitha, Harry Ram, the Director General and various other persons. And they also they talk about the uh, gratifications received directly and indirectly by the minister himself. And it seems his son was the biggest beneficiary. Now, the son would be an extension of himself. So it doesn't really matter whether the bribes are paid directly to you or to your son. They're bribes, uh, no matter what they are. And I think that needs to be unpacked. And I've got no doubt that as we're looking at this now, the investigative directorate are probably also looking at it. And I think it's only a matter of time now before the DPCI uh, effects some arrests in this regard. What about uh, Zwilliam Kizi himself? Is he likely to be arrested? Yeah, I think so. I think, that, I think so. And the reason I say that is it, it really doesn't matter whether I receive the cash payments myself or whether they've been received by my son. Um, and in this case, they were received by family members of his. So does it matter if you get the money or your wife or son gets the money? You're still getting money, and it's an unlawful gratification, which is corruption in terms of Section 3 of Act 12 of 2004. So the Act is very clear, and it doesn't really matter whether you receive it or somebody else receives it on your behalf. It would be like me... Uh, doing a favor and the gratification is to get a job for my son. You know, I've not benefited, it's my son that benefits. Well, indirectly I've benefited because I've arranged a job for him. So it's corruption in my opinion. And in my opinion, he should be criminally charged. Why has the president not moved against him yet? What is going through his mind, do you think? He's, he's no longer the Minister of Health, is he? He's, no, he's no longer the Minister of Health. And I think probably with this report now, 
I imagine that there'd be a disciplinary committee or whatever, you know, the internal process of the ANC uh, will be set up and they'll have to do some explaining. I mean, the, the direct gratification, if you want to call it that, amounts to only 6,720 rand. It's still a gratification. It's still a bribe. It's still an unlawful gratification. And there can be no doubt about that. And the cash paid to the minister's son, 300,000 rand cash transferred to the minister's son, 160,000 rand for a secondhand Toyota Land Cruiser, and vast amounts of cash that were transferred out of the bank and paid to the minister's son, which they don't have a proper record because, as you know, when you draw cash from the bank and you carry it in a bag and hand it to people, it's very hard to follow the audit trail. The minister lied to the country on the 26th of May this year. He had a press conference and he made it crystal clear that neither he nor any of his family received any benefits of whatsoever nature uh, as a result of this digital vibes thing. And of course, he was lying. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is Aon Investment Management Chief Investment Officer Asif Mohammed. Aon Investment Management and non-profit shareholder activist organization Just Share this month co-filed a climate lobbying resolution with Sasol, which was rejected by the board. Asif, could you provide some further background to the resolution and the possible reasons for Sasol rejecting these resolutions? Yes, um, as you know, climate risk is 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 a serious risk for 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 the planet. Um, you know, it impacts food security in a big way. Uh, you know, also increases um, inequality um, because of the the risks to the climate. Um, and yeah, so it's a lot of neg- if you might call it risks, a longer term if we don't sort out our carbon emissions. So the background to it is that about three or so years ago, probably three or four years ago, Josh Shea filed a resolution. And they, that resolution, if I recall correctly, was also rejected. Not a lobbying resolution, a climate disclosure resolution. Subsequent to that, um, a couple of shareholders, including ourselves, or some big other shareholders, also filed a resolution, climate disclosure, uh, and they also rejected that. Um, and then this year, um, we then decided, okay, because we met with them and they committed to actually meet with us and them filing a climate disclosure resolution themselves. So we're at the moment in discussions with them. We're meeting in the next couple of weeks or days with them on it. Um, but before then, we then decided, you know, what we need to do is also file this lobby resolution. And the reason why that's important is because globally, you find that business generally you know, they, via trade associations, other organizations, they tend to lobby government and policymakers to delay, let's say, the introduction of carbon tax. And that's a classic point in South Africa. For years, we've been discussing target tax, dark carbon taxes, and, 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 and they've introduced it now, but there's such a lot of exemptions which the industry has gotten. And it's just not Sassel, it's a number of other companies also that do that. And what we're saying, let's be transparent about it. Who are you paying all these fees to to actually, uh, you know, delay and kick down the can down the road in terms of implementing carbon taxes um, and then and also to to move to a just transition? So as you know, seen in the capital markets, they they've just recently announced their new tar- new targets, thirty percent reduction to twenty thirty and zero uh, percent to twenty fifty. 
um, you know, that we welcome that. Uh, but you can see again, had we not as shareholders, not just us, but as Joshua also, not put on pressure, we would not have had the situation. You know, you're also sitting with untenable positions where, you know, the recently ex-employee was sitting on the pres- presiden- presidential commission on um, environmental issues, you know, how to reduce carbon emissions. So you can see the inherent conflict of interest of a lot of these things where we business tries, lobby, kick the can down the road, delay, obfuscate. And as I mentioned to you, it's just not social. It's a lot of other companies. And it's, it's also to do with law, policy makers, regulation, legislation. It happens in America. It happens all, all over. In America, they've got disclosed lobbying. All we're asking for is similar disclosure here, voluntary disclosure and a non-binding resolution. Asif, Aon owns 1.7 million social shares worth around 450 million rand. That's a relatively mm-hmm. significant stake. What's the trade-off for you between pushing these climate targets and the company profiteering and delivering stellar returns to shareholders? Um, when it comes to ESG, what we found is that, um, you know, we, as a, to use another example, in the case of Steinoff, we weren't invested in it at all, you know, at all for, for 15 or so years, even today, on behalf of our clients. And the part of the reason was the governance issue was a trust issue more than, you know, and we were not invested. And, and in the end, you know, we got a lot of pressure along the way because the share price performed and did really, really well. And in December 2017, the share price blew up, um, not just because of the, the G element, the trust element, but because, you know, low tax rate, various other things that was well telegraphed in the newspaper subsequent to that. Um, and that helped us and it contributed to our performance. And similarly, we think in the case of Sassel or any good business is good profits. If you look at Woolworths, the good business journey, uh, they're doing really well because of the good business journey. So, so we think longer term, we believe longer term. And they've also, I think Sassel has also realized it and other companies have also realized that, that that's the way to go. I mean, there's a chairman of a leading retailer. I asked him four years ago, you know, what are you doing to increase your supply base uh, to, to reduce your cost of, of goods procured? He says, no, no, go and speak to my sister there. You know, she, she does the CSI stuff, you know. And now when he does a presentation, ESG is his first line. So we believe longer term, it adds value to shareholders, it adds value, it adds profits to the company. And in the case of Sassel, I'm sure if they, you know, achieve it and they're sincere about it, they will do the same and it, it, it get their return on invested capital. While at the same top time, you know, you lose jobs, but you'll hopefully retrain the workers into much more productive areas and hopefully generate a lot more profits by doing that. Asif, earlier you mentioned Sassel's comments, or promises rather, at the Capital Markets Day, improving emissions by 30% in 2030 and setting a net zero 2050 ambition. Do you think this is all but a pipe dream, or do you think there's merit in these targets, i.e. do you think management are just using this as a tick box exercise? Yeah. I mean, I can say the same comment about a lot of companies, whether it's globally or locally. Um, They're basically doing that. But the one thing that it does do, it actually applies their mind, they apply their mind, they consider it when the board looks at it, they know about, they're aware of the issues, they're aware of the risks. So what tends to happen is they tend to now focus on this and say, okay, what can we do to actually achieve those targets? It might be a pipe dream, but at least if they achieve, and I'm not condoning this at all, if they achieve at least 30% of their targets or 50% of the targets, it's, it's some sort of improvement, it's some sort of progress. And that's the approach we take. We however encourage them to do better than this 20 and 20, 
50 targets. The one concern we have is that the management, uh, who is basically more or less my age, and the same applies to me, uh, is that, you know, in, in, in 10 or 20 years time, we won't be around. So who's going to hold us to account? And that's the next issue about accountability. And that's why it's so important for that lobbying resolution to, to be, to be accepted. And, and in fact, the board has no justification for declining the lobbying resolution at all. They should actually have just put it forward and let the shareholders just decide. In fact, it's a non-binding resolution. I see ESG as a metric, given its predominant qualitative in nature, is very difficult to measure. With Sasol, it's obviously more pertinent given the adverse environmental impact of the oil and gas industry. But who's to say, for example, Amazon, who are rated as an ESG-compliant company, which careers millions of parcels all over the world, is more ESG-compliant than, say, a South African manufacturing company that doesn't get that same ESG rating? I agree with you. It's a lot of tick box approach and people kind of, if you might call it, they manage the, 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 the measurement and all of those things. It's just not just happens in the environmental space. It also happens in the social space, in the transformation space, where you effectively buy points or you buy credits, you know, to do that. Yes. I mean, I, I, I'm the first to admit that, that that's the case. Um, you know, um, in the case of Amazon, they are also aware of the emission um, reduction obligations. And, and, and what will happen with pressure from shareholders, uh, pressure from society at large, you'll find that they'll develop technology. And Amazon has been very good at developing technology to reduce emissions or to reduce any other risks that they might, might face going forward. If you look at the satellite capital markets today, they've also talked about green hydrogen, uh, carbon capture. Carbon capture is not viable yet. But there's a big effort. The fact that we, they can now, if you might call it, put in, um, generate electricity, uh, renewable electricity over the fence, as I call it, uh, that is a positive development. But oh, it's only a positive development because the business, trans- you know, them, and civil society have pushed government hard to allow you know, self-generation of renewables by, by business. But it took a long time, as you know, uh, certain parts of government resisted that for a long time. Walking away for, from ESG for a second and onto Sasol from a valuation perspective, mm. given where the oil price is now, Sasol will be on a forward earnings of no more than five times, which is a relatively low multiple even for an oil and gas company. I see if, if Sasol managed to pivot to more sustainable methods of generating energy, do you think there's room for significant multiple expansion and hence a tailwind for the share price in the years to come? Okay, that, that is the one aspect of it. The other aspect also they suffer from, you know, that they uh, poor capital budgeting and capital allocation. Uh, if you many, many years ago when they put up the Sinfields plants, they went way, way over budget. I can't recall the exact multiples. Then you look at Lake Charles, also way, way badly managed. And that is the problem with Sassel. Unfortunately, it sits with that, that, that perception of poor capital allocation. Um, and that's happened. That's not, and there's another example also where they've actually spent well over budget. So I don't know whether it's just with engineers or whether it's just Sassel this where they kind of put in plans and they, 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 they overshoot it. So in the case of, of, of Sassel and, and what saved them now, unfortunately, with the benefit of eyesight, and I did ask them at the, at the last AGM, aren't you going to regret selling 50% of Lake Charles, which they are now surely regretting by, of selling it. They should have just had a small rights issue, tied them over, uh, the oil prices are high now, um, as you know, the recovery for COVID, uh, coal prices are also high. So they're going to generate significant profits going forward because of the health purpose, not because of management 
being any better. I mean, they don't have control of the oil price. And the other thing that we're going to raise with them is the question of the, the incentive awards. Now they're going to be in, get a lot of incentive awards just because the oil price went up, but they had absolutely no control. What they should be measured on is the ability to manage costs and to manage it efficiently and effectively, bringing down unit costs, a much better longer-term capital allocation. And the, and the share award schemes should be at least long-term. It should be running for 10 years, not for the typical three years that you see in a South African market. In fact, most share schemes should be expanded to at least five to 10 years. I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and you've been listening to Aon Investment Management, Chief Investment Officer, Asif Mohammed. Have you visited the Biz News Wine Shop yet? If not, go shopping immediately at www.biznewsshop.com for a selection of great wines at just the right price, delivered straight to your door. T's and C's apply. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me for today's Market Insights is 10X founder Stephen Nathan. Let's start off with the news flow coming out of the JSC this morning. Sabanya Stillwater announced the end to its buyback program, which has been 8.1 billion rand on. A similar situation to what played out with the NASPIS process buybacks, where the share price is nosedive following the completion of the program. You've voiced your disapproval of buybacks in the past. Why is that? Uh, well, not so much disapproval outright, but just saying that there's sort of many factors to consider and there's potential conflicts uh, of interest. I mean, it's quite interesting, uh, you know, reading Sabania where the CEO says he believes the company is you know, materially undervalued. And it's always a little bit of a concern when a CEO starts to, you know, focus on the share price and be quite vocal about that. Um, you know, even if they've got good intentions, often it, you know, it's kind of, you know, take care of the, the business and the share price will take care of itself. Interesting, Kheri Ferri just last week said that, you know, he doesn't look at the share price and they never discuss the share price uh, in the boardroom. And, you know, that's in general, that is a better, uh, better approach. You want, you know, you, you want management and the company to focus on what they can control and not be over fixated on the share price. Uh, and, um, you know, as I said, there's also conflicts of interest because, you know, management is incentivized through share options. Share options is normally if the share price reaches a certain point, you're not rewarded for, for paying high dividends. Uh, whereas as a shareholder, you want dividends, you know, it's money in the bank and it's part of your total return. So if, you're, if your uh, incentive is just the share price and not the total return, well, you know, it's, it's potentially a conflict because it is in your interest not to pay the dividend, but to use that to buy back shares. And when you buy back shares, you divide profits over a fewer number of shares and you increase the share price. So there's, you know, there are all those considerations. And as you mentioned, you know, they bought at an average price. I think it was 55 Rand per share. The share is now 47 Rand. So you're 17% down. And on 8 billion, you know, that's a, like one and a half, 1.8 billion. That's not an insignificant number. So it's a, you know, it's a challenge because if you get it right, the market probably won't say anything. And if you get it wrong, then I think these kind of concerns may be raised. Kumba announced a new woman CEO effective from the new year. This comes after Clicks announced its new CEO to be a woman a few weeks ago. It's good to see progress in this regard. Positions that have historically been male-dominated, but the tide seems to be slowly turning. Yeah, it's great. You know, as you say, I think uh, you know, um, uh, it's 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 paying dividends. The you know the calls for greater diversity and greater sort of uh, uh, you know thought. Uh, given across not just a male dominated, but you know, 
gender and race. Uh, and it's fantastic uh, uh, to see that. And, you know, well done to Kumba and Clicks. You know, and hopefully others are going are gonna to follow. It's interesting. Um, I, I recently read a book. Uh, it's called Banking on It. And it's the it's a story of Starling, which is uh, one of the first neo banks uh, in the UK. Very successful. The first one to actually become profitable. And the founder, Anne Bowden, uh, she's the most unlikely founder ever. Uh, Scottish woman. Uh, Scottish or Welsh woman. Welsh, I think, actually. And she started it when she was in her 50s. Uh, and basically, you know, the point she made, it was incredibly difficult. Uh, for her to raise capital because uh, only 1% of all venture capital funding in the UK had gone to women, single women uh, founders of startups. So you can see how hard it is. And one of the comments she made is that it's difficult for sort of private equity venture capital because people do business with people like themselves. You know, when they don't see women, then they don't really do business with women. Uh, so, you know, this is really a fantastic step in the right direction. For sure. And we see big investment banks such as Citigroup, Jane Fraser taking the reins there. So it is a global theme, although it's good to see it's coming out in South Africa. Stephen, I spoke to Asif Mohammed, the CIO of Aon this morning. Aon and another activist group co-filed a climate lobbying resolution, which was rejected by the Sassel board. Aon has a 450 million rand position in Sassel. There seems to be a fine line between pushing these climate targets and Sassel continuing to profiteer and deliver solid returns. Where do you sit on the fence and your general take on activism as a whole? Uh, well, just I don't like to sit on the fence. <laughs> so I like to be on either side of the fence. So, so you know, I think, I think activism in general is good because, um, you know, uh, you, want, uh, you want people to voice concerns over issues that should be raised. Uh, and uh, we just spoke about sort of gender and diversity, and that's a really important issue. And it, had it not been for those lobbying groups over the years, it takes a long time, you know, when you start lobbying to when you see the results, uh, you know, and without the lobbying, you probably, you know, you probably, uh, uh, if you don't make people uncomfortable and people that, that, that should be dealing with uncomfortable issues, they're probably not going to get addressed. You know, they, they're not going to be top of the agenda. They might be bottom of the agenda. And often in board meetings, you don't get to the bottom of the agenda. Uh, so so you know, we know climate change is a really important issue. It's, it's, a, it's a complex issue. Uh, and as you say, there's the trade-off between uh, doing the right thing in the, long run, in the long run, protecting shareholder interests in the short, medium, and long run, and how you kind of make that transition. Uh, so I think it's really good that, uh, that companies uh, uh, or activist shareholders are taking this on. And, you know, and, and um, I think that companies can no longer ignore it. We had the United Nations recently put out a, a very hard-hitting report on this. So it's something you can't ignore, but how you do it, I think, is, 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 is the challenge. And also how you measure it, how you measure the impact you're having in a positive uh, way. So, so I don't think there's any kind of a quick answer, short answers, but I think that the more pressure that is put on companies, uh, the more uh, they are going to react to this. And as you say, from a from an investor perspective, I think it's good. I'm a little bit concerned, you know, the investment industry, and it's nothing, <laughs> nothing specific about uh, except for any uh, specific fund manager or company, but the investment industry is very good at sort of uh, uh, creating jobs for themselves and creating reasons for them to be hired as consultants or, you know, other, other service providers. So, you know, when you see sort of things like ESG and impact investing, it's very, very good. But, you know, there's always the potential for opportunism and, you know, let's raise a fund and, you know, uh, this fund didn't work out that well for me. So now let me go into, into this area. So, you know, there's always vested interest in these things and one hopes that, uh, 
you know, when you have transparency and measurement, then you know one can measure all players in the game, and we can see the value they're adding relative to the cost that they are charging. In that conversation, Asif also talked about executive remuneration, which is very topical at the moment, specifically bonuses and share schemes. He said that Sassel execs shouldn't be the beneficiaries of a higher oil price. Rather, their bonuses and share schemes should be tied to cost and operational controls. What's your take on this? Uh, no, I would agree. I think the principle, you know, the principle for a company is to control what you can control. So we spoke about management not being able to influence the share price, um, but there's external factors. And, you know, when when you're running Sassel, then the most important uh, uh, determinant of your earnings in any given period is going to be the oil price and pro- probably the currency as well. Uh, and those two are out of your control. So it's, it's, you know, it makes no sense to remunerate management on, uh, on variables that are out of their control. We see the same thing with NASPES. You know, NASPES has been, uh, management have been handsomely rewarded on share price, and the share price is driven by 10 cents, of which they have precisely zero uh, impact on. And all the other things that they are doing, uh, they're not being rewarded or measured against, against that. And Sassel, you know, would apply, many other companies would apply. The challenge is for the remuneration committee to be able to isolate factors that management can control and then to remunerate them and 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 measure and reward them on on that. It's not it's not an easy job, but then you know these people and these companies and these boards are very well paid to do hard jobs. If it was an easy job, you know, there wouldn't need to be much thought or much remuneration. So you would hope that companies are able to apply their minds to this and act in the best interest of shareholders and to incentivize and reward management on variables that are within their control and not and, and not outside of their control. Specifically in the listed space, there's been a lot of backlash with respect to executive remuneration. Do you think this is contributing to brain drain in South Africa? Well, hmm, I'm not sure it's specifically contributing to 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 brain drain. I don't think I don't think in and of itself executive remuneration being disclosed uh, contributes. I mean, if you look at the US, uh, you know, their uh, executive remuneration has been disclosed for many years and they are probably the most overpaid. So if ISX are overpaid, then the US is overpaid by a multiple of that. Uh, and I guess, you know, uh, if you're sort of overpaid, you're not really going to be going anywhere. I think in South Africa, it is a challenge because uh, executives, you know, there's so much scrutiny on uh, on listed companies. I mean, I know having spoken to some CEOs and some former CEOs, you know, uh, they sort of vow that if they could, they'd love to take their uh, companies private because then you, you know, you you far less in the public eye. And it's not just around uh, uh, remuneration. There's 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 sort of you know BE, there's employment equity, there's labour. You know, there are a lot of challenges that our country faces, uh, and often all those challenges kind of you know there's a multitude of cha- challenges. So there's a lot of challenges, and if you look at a funnel. You know, they tend to get funneled down to people that we can pick on and we can measure and are in the public profile. So, you know, they tend to bear probably a disproportionate uh, burden of that. But at the same time, you know, they are well rewarded in the vast majority of cases. And when you're a listed company, you know, there's a uh, there's a lot of good that goes with a listed company because, you know, you can raise capital, uh, you can get uh, share incentives and you can do really well uh most of the time, but there is a burden to that. There's a responsibility that says if the public can invest in you, in, in you, you know, you have to be a lot more transparent than if you were a private company.
Well, that's it for this evening's edition of the Biz News Power Hour. From myself, Nadja Swat, and the rest of the Biz News team, see you same time tomorrow. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.